Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. These are your DC comics for the week of April 19th, 2022. Pretty solid week. Some really great books. Um, some stuff that's maybe not the best, but uh, yeah, overall, I think it was a pretty good week. What did you think, Rock? Yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, yeah, I thought it was, it was decent. It was probably half and half. It was, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it was half and half. There was again. There's so many. Like it's it's kind of hard for me to process. I don't really rate it all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be bitching about some of them, but uh, for the most part, it was it was all right. Yeah, uh, I feel like definitely more bad than good. So anyway, there's a lot of uh, rumors swirling around DC Comics right now. With um, the the merger got finalized or acquisition, whatever word you want to use. Keep in mind, AT&T still has a, you know, they own the majority of the stock for uh, Warner Brothers, which obviously includes DC Comics, but they have sold what's called a controlling interest, even though usually a controlling interest means you own the majority of the company. And so that means you get to call the shots. Even though AT&T owns the majority of the stock, they're still the majority stakeholder. They are allowing uh, Discovery to, to call the shots. They're... AT&T realizes, hey, we're not a media company. We don't know what we're doing when it comes to media. Maybe be better off letting Discovery call the shot. So the merger was finalized last week. And now there's all these rumors swirling because the first thing Discovery says is, well, we need to trim the fat. Uh, I don't think, and I can't say for sure, but I don't think that would involve any more cost cutting or any more layoffs at DC, they are already bare bones. But, and again, I'm not privy to inside information when it comes to this, but I would be shocked if there weren't some redundant positions at Warner Brothers in terms of executives and middle managers, because 
if you're familiar with any U.S. corporation or any worldwide corporation for that matter, there are always redundant middle manager positions, people who make a lot of decisions and like to throw their weight around to sort of justify the reason that their job even exists when a lot of times it maybe doesn't necessarily need to. So everything is still up in the air. We don't know anything at this point. Everything is rumor and innuendo. And if it's like any other corporation or um, rumor mill that I've ever been a part of when it comes to that sort of thing in the business world, it's uh, the reason there are all these rumors and conflicting information is because nobody knows what's really going to happen because even the people that make the decisions probably haven't made the decisions. There's all these different, Oh, well we could do this or we could do this or we could do this. And people hear one of those choices and they take it as fact and spread it around when no decisions probably have actually been made. So uh, that being said, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the first book that we're going to talk about this week. It's Batman, uh, Superman, World's Finest, number two. This is the uh, Mark Wade written book starring Batman and Superman. Dan Mora handles the art. Tamara Bonvillan on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. There's a, a couple of uh, pretty cool looking variant covers. Tim Sale and Dave Stewart do one. Pete Woods does one. Jorge Jimenez and Alejandro Sanchez do another. So... Um, I really enjoyed the, the first issue of this. Second issue, while still good, I didn't enjoy as much. Um, and the reason for that is it sort of feels like, and I don't know if this stems from the idea that Mark Wade has been wanting to write Superman at DC Comics for, for so long. And even this is not Superman. Like he's writing the character, right? But I mean, I think Mark Wade wants to write action comics. He wants to write the Superman title. And I say, give it to him. I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. Um, but this is what he has for now because obviously there are other plans going on with those those other books. Uh, that being said, I, I don't know if the reason that this is so fast-paced is because he is so anxious to, to get his stories, his Superman stories or whatnot out there. Uh, the fact that this guest stars Doom Patrol I think is pretty cool. How they get the red kryptonite out of uh, that's infecting Superman's body is also done really, really well. Um, but again, it just, it, it feels like we're moving so fast that we're sort of, we don't get a lot of good character moments or moments to just kind of let the story sink in. It's all action. It's all plot driven and it's, it's going really, really fast, which to me, that's not a. It doesn't feel like a Mark Wade book because usually Mark Wade takes his time, and you do get those great character moments, and you do get callbacks to things that have happened in the past and whatnot. Um, so it's a little, it's a little strange for me because I'm not feeling that. Uh, but visually, in terms of the, the storytelling, I think Dan Mora should get a lot of credit for giving us a really cohesive visual narrative for this plot that is moving so fast. Uh, he's, he's getting us everything that's in there and that needs to be, uh, is coming across in the narrative. And I think based on the fact that it is moving so fast, the worry, at least for me, would be that the transitions from panel to panel come across a little choppy because it is moving so fast. And that that's not the case. So again, I, I'll give uh, Dan Moore a lot of credit for the visual storytelling. Uh, and the line work and, and the colors by Tamara Bonvillon, like all, all of that is is done very, very well. 
uh, visually, it's a, it's a beautiful book. And I, I don't want to come across as saying I, I, I'm not enjoying it, um, but I think I would enjoy it even more. Like maybe I'd give it a 7 out of 10, but maybe it would be an 8 or a 9 out of 10 if if the pacing was just dialed down just a little bit. Um, but again, maybe Mark Waid has a reason for going so quickly. Um, but yeah, it feels like uh, there's a lot stuffed in here. And it is uh, more than 20 pages. I think it's a, like a 24, 25-page book. Um, so yeah, I, I'm still along for the ride. Don't get me wrong. Um but I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see uh, where it goes from here if the story starts slowing down and we get a, a few more little character moments. But it's yeah, it's just weird to read a, a Mark Wade book where we're not having a a ton of callbacks to uh, to previous DC history. But anyway, what do you think, Rocky? You agree? Disagree? What are your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I'm a little bit more favorable than you are. I, I thought there was some. I enjoyed the character moments. Uh, the, I guess perhaps the reality is is that we we all. Whenever Superman and Batman are written, we always get a lot of character moments with them but by a lot of different writers. So uh, maybe there are character moments here, but maybe they just don't. Uh, maybe they don't resonate as much because we've we've kind of seen this song and dance before a little bit. It's just now we're seeing it from Mark Wade. I'm a Mark Wade fan. I think he's forgotten more about Superman than most of us will ever know or remember. Uh, I like the character moments here. Uh, this is a Batman who cares about Superman. Uh, you could uh, Dan Mora did a great job uh, illustrating Batman's concern when when Superman's on the table and his body is poisoned by red kryptonite and 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 uh, of course the the chief there of the Doom Patrol you know being very worried that they can't save Superman and uh, you, you could see the look of concern on on their face. I thought there was good. I thought there was good dialogue between Robin and uh, 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 the uh, oh, what's the uh, the the woman there on the Doom Patrol, what's her name? Uh, Elastigirl. What what's that? Elastigirl. Or Elastigirl, yeah. Jeez, it's been a while since I read Doom Patrol. Anyways, yeah. So I, I like the Doom Patrol. Obviously, I gotta. I, I should probably go back and rewatch some of the CW to to, to refresh my memory because it's been a long time since I read a Doom Patrol comic book. But I like the new villain here. This uh, this uh, Devil Nis Devil Nizha or Devil Nizha. Uh, he's got a, he's got an interesting origin. You know, his father, he was a son who had died and the father had, was very rich back in the ancient, in ancient times. And his father gave up everything to resurrect his son, only to have his son finally be resurrected. And we so disappointed in his father because his father gave up everything for him. And why did you give up everything to bring me back? If you have nothing, then we are, we, we have nothing. And he, and out of anger, he kills his own father and he builds up his own empire and ultimately, he's uh, uh, he's eventually defeated, and he he eventually he is he's defeated, but he's he's been brought back, and this is the enemy that they have to fight. Uh, there's time travel here. Mark Wade does a little bit of everything. There's character moments here between Supergirl and Robin, Dick Grayson that I thought were pretty good. There was <laughs> you could you could tell that I like that Mark Wade writes this story as if he really understands these characters and. Where even we know something went on between Supergirl and Robin in the past, and they only allude to it, but it, it feels natural. It feels like they're having a conversation as if it, it, it's really it, this is an easy read. Mark Wade is just a master of dialogue here. There's a reason why so many people, notwithstanding the fact that he might be a divisive figure in terms of social media, the fact is a lot of writers and creators look to Mark Wade. Uh, he's taught and he's he's given, he's he's helped out a lot of creators and. 
he knows he knows his craft and and Mark Way just you know I think we take we take it for granted and for those of you who, who you know read read this comic and read a lot of a lot of comics by by new writers and you can definitely see a difference I, I'm I I'm thoroughly entertained by this I I like how uh, I, I like the plotting uh, Dan Mora on the art uh, I I enjoyed the trans I thought he did a masterful job I I loved the the battle sequences the Superman and Batman. The way they, the way they, they, that they defeated, I mean, or, uh, uh, Doc, Dr. Faust, I think that's his name, uh, or, uh, Felix Faust, the way they defeated him, I thought was, uh, was, was quite ingenious. There was, uh, yeah, it was, it was just very cleverly written, well done. Uh, Mark Wade plays fast and loose with the time travel here, uh, but I like that he just assumes he assumes a lot of things. This reminds me a lot of the pre-crisis Superman and Supergirl in terms of their power set. And he just you, he does whatever he wants to to make the story work. And I enjoyed it. So uh, I had fun with it. And I think anyone reading this, you, you don't need any background to these characters. It's all explained here. But if you do, it just adds some bonus uh, bonus time to it. So it's, it, it gets a recommend for me. Yeah, I think I think I would probably recommend it as well. Um, again, it might be something that reads a little better uh, all collected. Because yeah, I and maybe you're right. Maybe those those moments that he would consider character moments, or you might consider character moments with Batman showing his concern for Superman or whatever. They, yeah, maybe it's just I've been reading DC so long that it didn't that they, those didn't resonate as character moments for me. Re- really, for me, the only character moments in the book are those. Um, those moments between Robin and and Supergirl that you mentioned—that's <laughs> really the only uh, what I would consider character moments. The rest is all pushing the narrative forward, which you know, as I said, seems to be moving moving really quickly. But uh, anyway, let's move on. We have the final issue of Blue and Gold. This is issue number eight. It's from Dan Jurgens as a writer. Ryan Sook handles uh, the main cover and the pencils and the colors. We have Wade Vaughn Grobager on inks and Rob Lee on letters. How did this wrap up for you? Uh, I thought it wrapped up rather well. I I did have some notes here. I just, uh, fortunately, I didn't put them in order. So let me grab them here. Um, yeah. Um, I found that uh, th- this was an, a, a nice wrap up. I like the... Uh, I can tell. I, I really like the cover. Uh, one of the things I'm gonna I'm gonna miss when with this series over. Dan Jurgens uh, writing. I, I I like his humor, and I like uh, I like that he, he he just takes certain liberties here. And I love the way that this series from the very beginning constantly broke the fourth wall. And this was this was a uh, uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. Uh, they you know they they lost everything. Blue Beetle lost his fortune. They they have no funding and. And the, the ending of this was nice. It's a little bit kind of a convenient ending. They they, they ended up getting funding at an end. They, they ended up getting funding for their for their agency through a source, which is perhaps kind of predictable, uh, but it works. Uh, the the villain here, the the black beetle, is uh, is an has I guess has an origin that uh, is I think interesting. Black beetle. It is revealed that he is in fact uh, Michael Carter from another part of the universe. Uh, specifically, he makes reference to the crime syndicate, Ultraman and Superwoman and Owlman. So he would appear to be, I think, the the the, the booster gold, or pardon me, the, the blue beetle, but 
of Earth 3, except he's the Black Beetle. So I'm assuming that he's from the future of an Earth 3. At least that's that's the inference that I got. I don't, I don't know about you, but I I kind of like that. I, I kind of like the idea of a... Of a, of a well, I guess of an, e- an evil black beetle. Now he's he's Michael Carter, but he's black beetle. So he's kind of a odd, eclectic combination of Booster Gold and Blue Beetle on Earth Three. So it's kind of a little bit weird that way, but it's fun, you know. And uh, again, his his motives for taking out for for wanting to defeat Booster and and Beetle is because he's you know he doesn't like the choices that they made and they have all this fame and they're not utilizing it and they're actually using it to help people and they draw inspiration from the justice league which black beetle thinks is nonsense you should draw inspiration from somebody different like let's say the crime syndicate <laughs> so i don't know it's it, it, again it's it, it's fun it's it, it's a fun read i there's maybe a little less humor in this one than in than in the past, but I enjoyed it. Uh, Buggles, we have Skeets, who is the little flying electronic doohickey of uh, of uh, 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 Booster Gold, and then we had got I guess Bugles or Buggles, whatever you want to call them, Buggles of uh, who becomes infected by a virus from the Black Beetle, uh, ends up uh, sort of corrupting things, and and they end up going back to the age of the dinosaurs and defeating Black Beetle back then, uh, in the past. And it's this is exactly what you would expect from a blue and gold adventure. And they 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 make it back. Uh, there's a lot of good humor. Uh, the art by Ryan Silk is just it's just, it's just fantastic. He's really good. I mean, all the different settings that this has taken place in, from issue one to now, we've we've been on various places on Earth. We've been on various places in the galaxy. We've time traveled. We've been everywhere. No matter what setting it is, Ryan Silk just draws it spectacularly. And of course, the social media. Th- as conveyed through um, uh, skeets and and buggles is conveyed. And there's a, there's always a little bit of a sort of an observe observation and breaking of the fourth wall, so to speak, as, as the rest of the social media observes uh, booster gold and blue beetle have their misadventures. And uh, this is a, this is a nice reprieve. It's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, it's fun. It's just plain fun. It's an enjoyable read. And it, it ends somewhat predictably, uh, blue and gold. Now they got blue and gold, I guess. I don't know if it's a detective agency or what it is, but they will help you. And, uh, they got their own funding and, you know, it ends, it ends on a high note. I I would have liked to have known a little bit more about Booster Gold's potential, uh, you know, uh, his relationship, because there was, there was a hint that a, a certain time, time master or time traveler was, or Rip Hunter was his son. I wish I would have gotten some little bit more information about that, but I'm sure that's going to be coming out. Who knows, maybe even going into dark crisis, but I enjoy this. Uh, you know, again, if fans of Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, man, this is sort of a must pick up. And for, for eight issues, I, you know, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it was a lot of fun. I, I do find the structure a little strange because it does feel like the last two issues after the alien storyline got finished off. And then this storyline, I don't want to say that it feels truncated because it, it certainly wraps up in a, in a satisfying way, but this storyline could have been expanded on. And it makes me go back and wonder if this wasn't planned on being an ongoing, right? Just the way that it's structured, it certainly seems like those first six issues are its own thing. And then a second story arc with them fighting against this Black Beetle character. So it's almost like we got the f- first issue 
you know, little hints of, of the Black Beetle storyline in the end of issue six and then set up for the Black Beetle in the last issue, issue seven. And now here's like the end of the Black Beetle story that would have been in an issue 12 moved up to an issue eight um, because, it, it, I mean, it's like a two a two part story. Now, don't get me wrong. Dan Jurgens was around before comics were written for the trade and everything was six, four, five, six issues. So he does a, a fantastic job. It wraps up in a satisfying way. But again, I, I just can't help but wonder if this series wasn't planned originally for eight issues and was planned to be an ongoing. Um, and I kind of wish it was because it is, like Rocky said, just a lot of fun and interesting ideas. And, you know, Booster Gold is a Dan Jurgens creation. And in my mind, he's still the one who writes Michael Carter with the best voice. Uh, and playing off the really fun and funny relationship that Booster and Blue Beetle have, obviously established in the Bwahaha era of the Justice League from Demetrius Giffen and, and McGuire. You know, th that's portrayed very, very well here. Yeah, is the ending a little convenient with the funding coming from Bruce Wayne before he lost his fortune? Yeah, it 100% is. But uh, again, I, I think... It probably wouldn't have been done that way if it wasn't for the fact that Dan Jurgens is like, well, turns out I'm only getting eight issues and I kind of want to, you know, wrap this up in a satisfying way. So I certainly don't blame him. Uh, it wasn't like he took the easy way out. I'm, I'm convinced that this was probably planned for more than eight issues, whether ongoing or 12 issues or what have you. And then it, things got moved around. So at the end of the day, it's still a lot of fun. The art by Ryan Sook. Uh, I don't think Ryan Sook gets enough credit for his uh, visual storytelling. I think uh, a lot of people know him as uh, a fantastic cover artist, and he certainly is that. I remember being at a convention, uh, I think it was in San Jose, California, um, and Ryan Sook, he works all digitally, but he, he will figure out his concepts on like this really lightweight paper, almost like tracing paper or typing paper. He'll sketch out just real quickly with pencil um, his concept art for what he's going to do for a cover before he actually goes to his Cintiq or iPad or whatever it is he draws on digitally. And I remember him having a stack of these for designing the covers that eventually became the covers for the weekly Future's End um, yeah. series that came out. And they were just sitting there and they were like 25 bucks each. And nobody was even like looking at him. And he also had in there like character design sheets because if, if anybody read that series and I think maybe only three of us did, uh, but he, there were designs in there for the captain, Mar the new Superman that would wearing a motorcycle helmet was actually Shazam, uh, the new firestorm and what have you. There were these character design sheets. Again, this is original art from Ryan Sook and they were like 25 bucks. I bought like four of them um, and I got them <laughs> framed and they're hanging up on my wall. And it's like, this is basically the only version of this cover that exists in terms of original art. Is it the exact cover? No, but it's the closest you're going to get to it. And I couldn't believe that people were not even, um, they weren't going through this original art at, at his table. It was, it was insane to me. So anyway, he's a fantastic uh, storyteller in terms of the emotion that he puts in and the story beats that he chooses and the, the impact of uh, what we get in uh, in his art from panel to panel. So I'm a huge Ryan Sook fan. Uh, and I know some people, I've heard some people specifically talking about this Booster Gold uh, Blue Beetle series where they're like, oh, his, 
his panel work, his interior work, it just, it's not as refined as his cover work. It's because it, it's a different purpose. It's a completely different purpose. A single static image on a cover is marketing, right? It's supposed to pull you in. It's supposed to make you pick up the book. When you're talking about doing interior panels, it's supposed to tell a story. It, it is a completely different muscle in a way uh, for the for the way things are laid out. Not every page needs to be a splash page and not every panel should be worthy of being a cover it, because again, it's, it's storytelling. It's sequential. That's the whole point of it. So uh, I'm a huge fan of his work and the fact that he colors himself here, the colors are very bright, which I always say helps give that classic superhero feel. So yeah, uh, I, I think Rocky and I both really recommend this series, especially if you're a fan of booster and blue beetle from the, the justice league uh, run, you'll really enjoy this. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. We have part four of The Night, which is the Batman book written by Chip Zdarsky. The art is by Carmen A. D. Jean Domenico. Colors are by Yvonne Placencia, lettered by Pat Barroso. This is the story that tells, you know, of Bruce Wayne traveling around the world, being trained by all these different people. Um, and it's sort of interesting, the, the pacing, the story structure that the series is taking on. I sort of talked about it early on how I sort of feel like this could be a, an ongoing and the fact that they're limiting it to, to 12 issues felt sort of strange. Um, and I don't know if Zadarsky is like framing it in, in four issue arcs or three issue arcs or how exactly it, it, there's only 10 issues. I think I said 12, it's actually only 10 um, because we sort of got one story already uh, of Bruce in Paris learning from this, cat burglar and, and trying to figure out that stuff. And now with this issue four, we've shifted to him on this mountaintop, this monastery, learning different fighting styles from supposedly the best fighter on the planet. Someone who's taken a bunch of different fighting styles and, and merged them into his own unique way. Um, and what we learn in the story is actually he's training a bunch of the members of the League of Shadows as well. Uh, and that's where Bruce draws a line and ends up leaving because uh, he's teaching him the dim mock or the death touch where you can vibrate your hand and kill with a, a single blow. Obviously, Bruce is very much against uh, killing. And so uh, it causes some friction. He also befriends another student there. I don't know if this is pulling in the retcon that James Tynan created with uh, Ghostmaker being part of Bruce's training. At first, I thought that was the case, and then as the story went on, I thought, nah, maybe this is a new character. I don't know how many people you can throw into Bruce Wayne's origin that know that he was training to become Batman before it's like, how does the entire world not know Bruce Wayne is Batman? So in terms of the story itself, is this an enjoyable story? Yes, it's an enjoyable story. In terms of the logistics, the way it all fits, and the number of issues, and should it have been more and should it have been less – I don't want that to take away from what Zdarsky and Dijon Domenico are doing here in terms of impact, because I am really, really enjoying this. But again, I go back to, I think this just needs to be its own thing. And I'm not saying it needs to go on forever, but I, I sort of wish DC had just said, you know what, Zdarsky, tell your story and take as many issues as you think it's going to take. We're not going to say this is not, not going to limit it to say, Hey, this is only 10 issues or this is only 12 issues. You know, because again, it just feels like maybe we're skipping over some things. And there's even some reference here that Bruce talks about in the story about, yeah, Henri Ducard taught me how to do this and taught me how to do that. And that's 
how I was able to find this uh, this monastery. That's how I was able to get here. I want to see that stuff too. I want to see Bruce learn how to be a detective, how to track people. What is Henri Ducard teaching him? I think those are important uh, building blocks for Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of seed for a lot of great stories there, especially if you look at the relationship between uh, Ducard and um, and Bruce Wayne that we got just recently in the detective series from Tom Taylor. You know, it shows that their their relationship is one that's very complicated. So I'd love to see more of that. So I, I don't like the idea that we're skipping over. I mean, this was marketed, and, and please correct me, Rocky, if you felt feel differently. This was marketed by DC as, hey, we're going to finally see those lost years, Bruce Wayne training to become Batman. And now it feels truncated. And I don't, I don't like that. Um, so yeah. uh, as far as the art goes, you know, I'm not always a big fan of Dijon Domenico style. It's a very kinetic style, but it also can be uh, a little looser than I prefer at times. But the man does have a very good sense of, of storytelling. He has a very good sense of scope and scale. Um, and he does convey that really well uh, based on the setting, this monastery up in these uh, snowy mountains and whatnot. So, uh, so great art, great visuals. Um, so overall I, I am enjoying it, but yeah, I, I mean, my, my, my nitpick on it is that I kind of want more of it. Like, Don't skip anything. If it needs to be 40 issues, make it 40 issues. Just don't skip anything. I, you know, I think Zdarsky is, is talented enough to make this the de definitive story of what Bruce did in those years. Now I understand from an editorial standpoint, maybe they don't want that because then that, if you make a definitive, Hey, this is what happened, you know, day by day, almost. And obviously you're not going to go day by day and you're not going to put in timestamps or whatever, but I, I understand that it would limit other creators from coming in later on and adding to, Oh, by the way, I had this great story for Bruce when he was, you know, during be, training to become Batman, and all of a sudden, well, w then you have readers going, well, where does this fit? Because we got the forty issue Zdarsky run, and this didn't happen in that. So I do, I understand it from a practical standpoint, but I also think, well, that's what Black Label is for, and you can tell, you know, a different story out of continuity or whatnot. Uh, I just want a good story, and when things are skipped over, it it just bugs me. I don't know. Anyway, what do you think? This was one of my uh, uh, this is one of my favorite issues because I I I enjoyed it enough that I'm I'm really curious as to who this Anton is. I mean Bruce Wayne he goes to meet this Master Kirigi Master Kirigi in uh, in in this mountaintop uh, somewhere located between North Korea and China. So he spends a lot of time trying to find this. He get I, I found it interesting that it was actually a Henri Descartes, as you mentioned, that gave him a list of a bunch of people that are the best in the world at what they do. So, you know, what better person uh, to get some information from than Henri Descartes? Because Henri Descartes had his own list of people that were the best of the best, because that's how Henri Descartes, uh, you know, as as is, as a as a high tech, I guess, uh, private detective, Henri Descartes, uh, he. he he benefits, and that's how, why Ducard is so good, because he knows how important it is to work with the best people. And he sort of gives some of that wisdom to Bruce Wayne, saying, you know, you, to be the best, you've got to be trained by the best. And that's why Bruce Wayne is there. I like the fact that Master Kirigi, Kirigi, is, uh, Kirigi is flawed. He works, and he'll even train people for to 
to use lethal force uh, because he he wants to have students so badly that he'll even teach them to do bad things and teach them how to use deadly techniques as long as he can stay in business and and still continue to have practice, still continue to be a teacher and a a master and have, have and train students under him. And it's interesting that we don't know there's the group of bad students that ultimately showed up there. I'm not sure if they're from the legal shadows or not. I'm not sure if that was mentioned or not. You you mentioned that, uh, uh, Jace, but I'm. It's it's not clear to me if it's uh, who sent them. Who is the benefactor? Who is the ben- Who is Master Karigi's benefactor? Is it Razal Gol? That seems to be an obvious guess. Uh, it's interesting. I'm I'm guessing it's Razal Gol, and those students were probably from the legal shadows. So there's some early hints there. Uh, I found it interesting that. Um, at the end, it's revealed that it was actually Anton. Uh, Anton is the one that went and told that those league, those League of Shadow members, told those other students that Bruce Wayne had left, that that Jack had left. Remember that Bruce Wayne never was has not been truthful to Anton about his real name, and it's fair to conclude that Anton did not tell Bruce his real name. So you're right; it might be Ghostmaker. Uh, my guess is, could it be David Kane? Cassandra Kane's father, because he kind of has the grayness above the ears. That's my own theory, but it could be wrong. I just, I love the fact that I'm speculating. I love the fact that Chip Sardaski's not spelling this all out, because those of us who have, who know a lot about Batman history or who arrogantly think we do, we can speculate like we're speculating now. And I kind of like that. I like when the writer sort of lets, you know, when a writer doesn't give everything away, we don't need to be spoon-fed every detail. Chip Sardaski leaves enough on the table here that we can kind of read into whatever we like to this. I like that this is Bruce Wayne learning how to fight, learning the the benefits of learning to fight with somebody, uh, learning to uh, maybe open himself up to friendship like he does with Anton here. And Anton might... Who ends up leaving with them, uh, or ultimately, you know, even though they're separated, at, at some point they're going to meet again. It's going to be interesting, you know, who is this Anton? And so this is a future story in the making, in all likelihood, unless it is Ghostmaker, who knows? But I, I love the seeds that were planted here. Uh, D, uh, Dijian Demonico, uh, great art. I love this. It's very kinetic, and and it's perfect for the type of martial arts that we're seeing. I thought the fight scenes were really good. I thought it played out very well, especially when Anton and Jack, Bruce, and this other mysterious character who befriends Bruce, the way they fight each other and play off each other and defeat the students at the end, I thought it worked really well. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm enjoying this. And the fact that it's only 10 issues, it doesn't bother me as much as it, as, as it appears to bother you. I, this, we knew that this was 10 issues going into it. So I never expected, I never expected that we would get all the details and the fact that you want more, that you want to know what led to this. And I think that's probably part of the goal here is that if, if you're excited for this and you want more, well, we probably will get more that, uh, of the, of these types of stories because we know Chip Sardaski is going to be around for a while since he's the new writer of Batman. And this just makes, puts a smile on my face because these are the types of stories that I like. Uh, sort of planting some seeds and make no mistake, some of the seeds that Chip Sardaski might be planting in this 10 issue series might bear fruit in his Batman stories. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, again, my disappointment comes from the fact that, yeah, you're right. I want more. And it does, that does lend credence to how good this story is. And I'm not saying that it's not, but my whole thing is even Zdarsky himself in his newsletter was saying, you know, this is the definitive Hey, what did Bruce Wayne do in those years where he was gone? Except it's not because we're skipping over stuff. So 
yeah, I had expectations and maybe I shouldn't have based on the way DC marketed this based on what Zdarsky himself was saying. Um, and it all, yeah, it goes back to, to, yeah, I, I am making an assumption that Le- league of uh, assassins because Karigi himself, when Bruce says, who are they when he finally confronts him when he's leaving and Karigi says, they're the price I pay to teach without worry. Right. So obviously as powerful as Karigi is, there's gotta be somebody even more powerful that could stop him. So yeah, my mind immediately goes to, to Ra's al Ghul. He's got to have the blessing. Uh, and so what is the price that he pays in order to have this blessing and be able to do what he does? Well, he's got to train assassins. And if you look at the text, when Karigi answers, he says, assassins in training and the word assassins is bolded. And then it says sent to me by a benefactor and the word benefactor is bolded. So to me, that's saying you're saying assassins, assassins bolded when you're talking about assassins in DC universe. Yeah. That's the League of Shadows. It's a and the benefactor yeah. of that, that's Ra's al Ghul. Now, again, it's not coming right out and saying it, but uh, I mean, I, that's got to be what's insinuated. And, you know, maybe Zdarsky is leaving it purposely vague so that it does leave the door open for other storytellers, or even himself, to come back in later. Uh, and then he finishes it by, and I shepherd them. I, I am left alone to do what I do best. So. Yeah, I mean, Karigi's all about passing on his knowledge. You know, he says, I'm not here to judge anything, but the techniques, this is my art. You know, a writer writes, a painter paints. If you're a martial artist, this is what you do. You pass on your knowledge. So right or wrong, teaching uh, the, the dim mock, the death touch. You know, again, he doesn't judge. He, he just teaches. And what the people choose to do with it is up to them. I think that's a kind of a a blase way to go through life. I don't agree with that philosophy, kind of a laissez-faire philosophy there. I don't, I don't think in, in the real world it's practical. I think if you teach somebody how to kill other people with just their touch, you are responsible for the people that they kill that, that some of that blood is on your hands. Obviously Karigi doesn't see it that way. Uh, But again, that's part of what makes the story so intriguing. Um, And you can look at it this way too. Like here, here's Bruce Wayne. You know, some would argue the greatest hero, Batman, the greatest hero in, in the DC pantheon. Uh, and he's basically saying the ends justify the means. He doesn't, he's not trying to stop Karigi here, at least not at this point. Maybe he will at some point further down the line in Zdarsky's story. But even he's saying, well, the ends justify the means. I'm going to, you know, leave. I'm not going to try to stop Karigi from training all these people, um, training these assassins, because again, he thinks the ends justify the means. So pretty interesting way to look at it. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Up next, we have Catwoman number 42. This is from writer Tinny Howard. Nico Leone does the art. Veronica Gandini on colors. Simon Bolin on letters. Uh, I, I, I will say this about Catwoman as a series since Tinny Howard has come on. It is a very consistent book in quality, both in terms of art and in terms of story and pacing and structure. Uh, it is enjoyable. I do like the direction that Tinny Howard is taking it. However, I have the same sort of critique about the book that I've had since the beginning. Um, it feels uh, like a, sort of similar to the book we just talked about in my mind, where think there's some stuff that's being skipped over. We are moving at a very breakneck pace here. Um, and maybe it's just in contrast to the uh, Ram V uh, run that just came right before where everything felt a little more deliberate. So I, I won't say that I, I feel like things are being missed, but it does feel like everything is moving so quickly 
And particularly in this issue, we get a, re, a lot of dialogue, a lot of word balloons. It's a very wordy issue. Um, so while I, I, I enjoy what's happening in the book, I don't really have a sense of who Catwoman is to Tinny Howard yet um, because it feels a little more plot driven rather than character driven for who Selena is. Um, I, I definitely appreciate leaning back into the organized crime aspect of, of who Selena is and, th and that world. Uh, it feels very far removed from the Selena Kyle that was in the, the Tom King run of Batman or is in the Bat Cat series that's going on right now, uh, or even the Catwoman Lonely City that we'll talk about that being a, a black label book. I mean, this is, this is really Selena just a hair's width away from still being a, a criminal wrapped up in the world of um, crime bosses and, and whatnot in, in Gotham city. Uh, so again, if that's the direction that Tinny Howard wants to take it, that's fine, but it just doesn't necessarily jive with recent DC history for, uh, for Selena Kyle. Um, setting that aside is an inter interesting story. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. It's very intriguing. I like where she's taken it almost to the point where, you know, that's my complaint. Can we slow down just, just a half a beat? Um, so that, I can enjoy this a little more because man, does it move really, really fast. Uh, that being said, the Nico Leone art, it's, it's its own thing. It is so noirish and stylized and the setting itself, it feels like a cross between the traditional Gotham city that we see that's dark and very shadowed with kind of this eighties Miami vice vibe with a lot of pinks and, and purples and sort of these neon colors. So I really dig the aesthetic of the book. And uh, I think the aesthetic of the visuals that Nico Leone gives us is really starting to pair up and dovetail very, very well with the narrative style that Tinny Howard is, is giving us. Um, but again, going back to this idea of pacing, if she slows it down just a, a little bit, I think the art will land with even more impact uh, if you can believe that. So uh, really love the art, uh, especially the the colors. Like I said, that Victoria, uh, Veronica Gandini has given us with a lot of the the neons and uh, at the beginning, um, you know, playing off of issue forty one, where uh, some of these members of uh, of one of the crime families are in Selena's apartment and she's fighting against one of them here in the uh, the first couple pages, and he's wearing this jacket. Actually, it's a she. She's wearing this jacket that that looks like it's glowing, you know, this is static art and it looks like it's glowing. Uh, it's fantastic. So great color work by Veronica Gandini, beautiful line work, uh, great character work too from, from Tinny Howard. I just, uh, I'd like it to slow down just uh, a little bit and, and hopefully it will once we're done with this first arc here where she's kind of established her tone. Um, Cause I, I just want a little more time to, to savor the story. Um, but yeah, I, I really feel like this issue, uh, things are really starting to come together. Uh, what did you think about this one? Uh, this this was the best issue out of the out of her this this issue. I think this is the fifth uh, the fifth issue uh, ending the this story arc, and this is the best one so far. I agree with you that there's a lot happening, but I'm gonna cut Teeny Howard a lot of slack here because I, I I I bitch a lot about decompression and 
this story was fun. I had a lot of fun with this story. And this this story really came together very well for me. I love the fact, I mean, this is this is Catwoman finding herself in an almost an impossible situation. And uh, and this is Teeny Howard's Catwoman. I got a taste of how Teeny Howard views Catwoman. Selena really does. She's about protecting strays. I mean, in Ram V's run, uh, we, we knew we, we were... We were shown a Catwoman, a Selena Kyle, who cares about the strays, who cares about a certain portion of Gotham City. At heart, uh, Catwoman Selena is about protecting the innocent and protecting those that are like her on the streets. And in, I think from a thematic point of view, I think Teeny Howard is, has at least continued that tradition or, or that theme that Ram V uh, had. And that is, this whole arc began because because Catwoman wanted to uh, avenge essentially a nobody uh, a girl who was a dancer in a bar that uh that black mass considered a nobody in fact one of the themes in this I issue and, and Catwoman all but says it you know she says you can't defend against women like me you've never even respected us meaning us women to, enough to even study us you just make us your enemy and and black mask is a chauvinist he's a pig and you know he wants to. He, he hates Catwoman. He wants to take Catwoman out. The only reason he can't just take Catwoman out is that the five, there are five crime families in Gotham, and they vote. And a majority of them, three out of five of them, have to. Um, they have to vote to take Catwoman out. Black Mask is saying, "Look, don't worry about it. Let's take Catwoman out." They're afraid of how Batman's going to react. If that if they kill Catwoman, they know that they just know that. Uh, Batman's not far behind and they don't want that kind of mess. Well, Selena is way ahead of them. Selena understands that this is like the plan. And she, uh, she, uh, Eco, uh, of the Hasegawa family, and that's from Genevieve Valentine's run, has basically sort of gives her some information saying, look, uh, don't, you know, if you want my vote, uh, the other, I, I'm one of those crime families, but you're going to have to convince at least one other crime family member from another crime family to side with you, Selena. And if you do that, then, then I will flip my vote and it'll be three to five, three against two, and you'll be okay. And the, the manner in which Teeny Howard tells that story of what, how Catwoman sets up the black mask, it's just, it's so great. She goes to uh, Valmont, which was that sort of like, I guess, gender neutral character i guess uh from early on and goes to him and has him help her with a forgery and we didn't know what the, valmont was going to help her forge and it's discovered that what she does is that she she utilizes her connections to all the women of the dance club and all the women all all powerful men uh catwoman knows are have women do their bidding for them Women do their schedules. Women do everything. And she finds out essentially where Black Mask is has a dentist appointment of all things. And while he's getting his teeth worked on, Catwoman literally steals his mask, has a Valmont forge the mask, duplicate it, and, uh, and to great effect. And the Black Mask is obsessed with his mask because he built uh, – Black Mask had his mask crafted from the coffin of his dead father. And so it means a lot to him. And, you know, so much of the story happens. They have the vote. It's three to five in favor of killing Catwoman. But Black Mask himself changes his vote not to kill Catwoman because if they do, 
Catwoman is taunting him with his mask saying, you're not even wearing your real mask. I got your mask. If you want to shoot me between the eyes, go ahead. You're going to be destroying your mask that you made from the coffin of your dead father. And it's masterful. Black Mask changes his vote. His vote. He appears... She she pisses off Black Mask to such a point that by the end of the issue, Black Mask is pretty much acting psychotically, and the other crime fam the other crime families, the heads of the other crime families, the Tamasco, uh, the uh, Tamaso family, the Hasegawa family, the Sullivan family, and the Ebenescu family, uh, they all basically change their vote because they realize that. Uh, Roman Sianus, Roman Sianus as Black Mask, he he's he's losing it. He's lost his objectivity because of his obsession with Catwoman. And so at the end, with him being defeated, uh, it's it, you know we, we get this a final scene, which was a little bit jarring, but I thought very well done, where where Catwoman goes back to the club, the Kitty Cat House, and to to give her condolences to the uh, to the one uh, one of the dancers that was killed uh, in the opening issue of this uh, story arc. But I thought this was well done. I agree that the pacing was very fast. It would have been nice to have slowed it down a bit, but the story is there. I didn't mind the extra ex exposition here. I thought it worked. Uh, I thought it helped me get understand the voice that Teeny Howard was giving to Selena. And it it's different than Ram V. But and it because it's coming off the heels of a very successful Ram V iteration of Catwoman, uh, I think we we should be reminded that G this actually fits in nicely with Genevieve Valentine's run on Catwoman. It's more consistent. Had it come off the heels of that run, I think people would be talking a lot a lot uh, more positively than they generally are about this run. I like this. I uh, and this is something that it. Um, I, I love the humor here. I love how Catwoman got one up on Black Mask here. I, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic stealing the Black Mask, stealing his Black Mask, using it against him. Uh, literally, the one vote. I mean, literally orchestrating things so the Black Mask changes his vote, <laughs> so that Black so that so that Catwoman is not killed. I mean, that was just masterful how she pulled that off, and all by utilizing. All these other women, like because all powerful men have women that work under them, doing their schedules, doing everything else, and how she utilized their power. I mean, this was actually an uplifting comic book. It says something about the dichotomy of 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 of, of the relationship between men and women. It, it plays to you know you know in one of the iterations of Catwoman's origin, she was a woman of the night. She was a you know a hooker, and and so she had and she was abused, and and so. If anybody understands the voices and the and the tribulations that you know w women who work the streets and maybe work the nightclubs and work those jobs that uh, to make a just make a, a living, Selena Kyle understands that, and I, I thought this really uh, Teeny Howard did a good job giving voice to that aspect of the maybe the darker aspects of Gotham here, and all with these five families. Uh, Gotham families. I mean, this was well done. There, there was a lot of narrative stuff to play with here. And I think Teeny Howard, given the amount of real estate she had, I think she pulled it off, notwithstanding that that it got a little wordy at times. But I was I'm quite forgiving on that. Yeah, I don't want to come across as as not as saying I didn't like the fact that it had a lot of dialogue. I just was. Yeah, it was all necessary in my mind. But for those that, you know, maybe like to have the story told a little more visually. Uh, and I think that does go back to this idea of just how fast paced it is. Um, you know, a lot of the things that were being, that were being told in the, the dialogue are things that were not seen on the page. You know, this isn't a instance like, 
you know, think back to the those early spawn issues where it's a wall of text, and then we see the same thing in the, you know that's being described in the wall of text in the art. That's not the case here. This dialogue isn't necessary, but it is uh, it is a pretty wordy book. So, anyway, let's move on. Uh, we have the end of the Robin series. This is issue number six. This is from writer Tim Seeley. Baldemar uh, Rivas is the artist. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors. Steve Wands on letters. What do you think of the way this one wrapped up, Rocky? Uh, well, I uh, I never I came into this series not giving it a lot of uh, not not giving it much of a chance because I was very biased against the fact that I didn't want this series. I didn't want a Robin series. I I felt all Robined out and I and uh, you know so here we are in issue six and. Goddamn, I, I will give uh, Tim Seeley credit. This actually, I understand the point that he's trying to make. I, I'm i still not in the mood for Robin's story. I, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I, I still think that there are too damn many Robins, but it is what it is. But there's, I got to give him credit. Uh, Tim Seeley does a good job narratively weaving all these Robins uh, around, uh, around the Batman. And goddamn, if he doesn't have something to say. And I thought he said it rather well here in this story. This is about, uh, these, these, we've reached the final issue here where the, this, the original Robin ends up being this, uh, Anita Jean, this Jenny Wren. And her origin is, a, is very effectively told here. And we, uh, we discover that in, early in Batman's career, there was this villain named Cormac Dodge, who was essentially an escape artist and also a, a, a very a professional hacker. And ultimately, he ends up causing a lot of havoc for Batman by hacking into the Batcave and causing Batman a lot of havoc. And ultimately, somebody very close to this villain, Cormac Dodge, was this, uh, Jenny, this Anita Jean, this young woman, who ultimately... Uh, Ultimately, Batman befriends her and sort of trains her, and she uses her hacking ability to help Batman defeat Cormac, Cormac Lodge, only she ends up uh, shooting Cormac uh, Dodge in the head, killing him, and of course, she, she was one of... This sort of rewrites Batman's early history. Now, there's some criticism there. I mean, out of the blue, now suddenly we have new history of a, of a new young Robin, and this Jenny Wren character, and this young Jenny Wren character... The reason why Batman, you know, you've never heard of her since then is that she ends up killing, using, utilizing lethal force. I mean, she puts Jason Todd to shame. I mean, she utilizes lethal force. She kills uh, Cormac Dodge and she seemingly dies. But as it turns out that her death was nothing but uh, essentially an illusion because of the various tech used in this thing, this SKP tech eye devices, which... Uh, ultimately, Jenny Wren has been using essentially for mind control, and she's been utilizing that to manipulate the manipulate all the Robins. All the Robins have their gauntlet, and what a gauntlet is for a Robin is whatever your formative adventure was, your your gauntlet. You're sort of like your sort of like a the Jedi trials for Jedi. You've got you've got a trial that Batman gives you a trial that you got to pass before you become a Robin. They call it a gauntlet. All the five Robins have their have their own gauntlet that they had to go through. And so, of course, the Jenny Wren. Of course, Jenny Wren's gauntlet, I guess, was that uh, she she failed it because she utilized lethal force. And she, this Jenny Wren, this this Anita Jean, she kept an eye on all the Robins that Batman had over the years. And she, of course, wants revenge and ultimately revenge on Batman. This ends on a note where Batman asks essentially forgiveness from uh, Jenny Wren, saying, it's my fault. You know, I failed you. You didn't fail the gauntlet uh, when you when you uh, killed Cormac Dodge. I failed you. 
I didn't I didn't believe that. I thought Batman dis, uh, displayed a little bit too much compassion for a murderer. Uh, but then he always does that when it's family. He forgives Jason Todd too many times too over the years. Bat Batman ultimately he he's always that's Batman's nature. He's hard and he comes across like a jerk. And then I'll, then I'll, then then writers will always show well his softer side and he'll show some compassion, but only when he's confronted. Uh, there was a, a an indication at the end where, of this story that maybe all of this was the sixth gauntlet that this was. This, this was all a plan by Batman to test all the Robins and bring them all together. That maybe this was a master plan, plan by Bruce Wayne. But uh, in any event, I don't think that was the case. Uh, but I, lo- I like how Tim Seeley brought it all together and he weaved the story. And it actually ended on, it, ended with, it ends with, a, with an image of, of, of a Robin actually tweeting uh, on a, on a lamppost in broad daylight, not in the darkness, which you would normally expect uh, a Batman story or Robin story to end. And I always find that interesting that, you know, Batman and Robin, when you think of a bat, you think of nighttime. And I like the fact that the final panel of Robins here ends in the daytime with a bird, <laughs> with a bird singing. Cause, cause it is kind of an interesting dichotomy of, of all the th- animals you would expect to team up with vis-a-vis names. It would, Batman and Robin is sort of an odd, odd uh, team up of, uh, if you look at it from a, uh, from an animal point of view. But in, in any event, I, it, it was a nice ending. It was a nice ending. I, I, this, this was a story that took me by surprise. I went in with all the negativity, negativity you could imagine, not giving this series the benefit of the doubt or even my attention, quite frankly. And then slowly over time, it grew on me. And this ending was, was this was a nice ending. This was an impressive ending. Tim Seeley brought all those disparate plot points together. And this Jenny Wren character is actually, actually interesting. He actually made me care a little bit about her. And that's shocking because I think there's too damn many Robins. So kudos to Tim Seeley. And uh, the art by uh, B- uh, Baldemar uh, Rivas. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the art because I'm not a, I just don't, I'm not a big fan of the style. But it did grow on me. It was consistent. I could understand the action, uh, the action, the the character interactions, the the emotional moments, the dialogue between the characters. I could see all of that. Uh, there was I all of that was illustrated uh, very well. There was a deep moments here between Nightwing and when Batman when he when he's talking about when he was they first came up with the name Robin and it's a callback and it's it's the reason why they. The name Robin was chosen. It's an interesting callback and it pulls in the origin of Jenny Wren and it actually pulls in and related to the entire narrative as a whole. It works very well. So uh, Tim Seeley, I could tell he's thought about this story for a long time. And when he finally got an opportunity, he indicated an opportunity to write it for that round Robin. And then having won it, I can see because I, I think that there's a he did there's a lot of thought put into this and weaving all these Robins and characters together. I think he did an admirable job. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he did a great job, and you know he, he he has his opinions about you know Batman using a kid sidekick for sure, and uh, you know a lot of it comes out in, in this story. That being said, this isn't actually my favorite. Although I appreciated that he wrapped everything up pretty cleanly here, this isn't my favorite issue. I thought issue five landed with more emotional impact, especially that line 
uh, about, you know, Batman isn't just there to catch the Robins when they fall, but the Robins are there to catch Batman when, when he falls. So I thought that issue landed a little bit better for me. It, it, this one almost felt a little anticlimactic because, yes, it does give us the definitive origin of, of Jenny Wren, uh, Anita Jean as uh, as a Robin, and she's an interesting character. Uh, but I sort of go back to what you said. There's too many Robins, and you know, despite the fact that there are some interesting aspects to her origin, and there might be more of her story to tell, uh, some other creator could come along and, and pick up the pieces and, and tell something compelling. I still don't really care about her as a character. She feels uh, very much like a plot device here rather than a fully realized character for me. And so based on the fact that this issue focuses on her, they didn't really land for me. But I, I do agree that the Baldemar Rivas art I is not my style of art. A uh, little manga influenced, a little, you know, too much of an animation style, a little too clean, not, you know, very light backgrounds, not a lot of detail. So it doesn't really speak to me, but his storytelling is very good. Uh, I love the camera angles and how he zooms in on uh, faces. Sometimes, you know, all you get is a mouth or an eye or what have you to show uh, emotion or reaction to a particular line of dialogue. So I appreciated all of that. I think he's a, a, a good storyteller visually. Uh, and overall, this was uh, an interesting series that much like yourself, I didn't have very high expectations for. Despite the fact that I, I, I'm a fan of Tim Seeley, I think he's a very talented writer. There were so many other stories in that first year of Round Robin that seemed more interesting to me. This was almost at the bottom of my list of what I wanted to win, just because we have so much Batman already. Uh, and here we are with Robins winning as a, a derivative story. But, you know, all credit to the creative team. This was uh, a very well-crafted story, uh, and it did have something to say. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Uh, Nightwing, speaking of Batman-related, Nightwing number 91 is up next. For whatever reason, our uh, press preview copy didn't have the credits, but we know it is written by Tom Taylor. Geraldo Borges handles the interior art. Adriano Lucas is on colors, and I believe it's Wes Abbott on letters. Apologies if uh, I'm incorrectly crediting somebody there. Um, so we saw last issue, there was another attempt on Dick Grayson's life, and he chose to go and, and hide out or maybe chose to go hide out. It's not the right way to put it because Wally West comes in and picks him up and takes him to Mr. Terrific where he gets a new costume. That's a little more protective. And then he takes him to uh, to central city or Keystone city, whichever one it is. I can never keep him straight where Wally lives and, and he's hiding out with Wally's family. And in this issue, they get a chance to, to sort of fight back. Hey, who are the ones pulling the trigger? Who are the ones that are trying to assassinate, uh, Bruce Wayne, he obviously knows, or not Bruce Wayne, but Dick Grayson rather, uh, but Dick and Barbara and Wally, everybody, they all know who's at the end, who's behind it, right? Like it's all being uh, manipulated or the shots are being called by Blockbuster, but who are the people that are actually trying to kill him? So we get a Lady, lady Shiva appearance and we get the, the appearance of another character who uh, I, I think this is the first time, it's certainly the first time I've ever heard of her. Uh, La Agent Funier or Funebrer, Funebre, maybe Funebre, Funebre, is that it? Yeah, I know it's French. My French is not uh, uh, very good, as you can tell. Uh, but yeah, uh, Nightwing describes her as a sommelier of death. Uh, so she shows up here for the first time. 
not really in the same class. You know, yeah, she, you might be a world-class assassin, but when you're facing Flash and Nightwing, you're sort of out of your league. And um, I didn't mind that she was defeated pretty easily. But what I enjoyed even more than that was the fact that all the rest of, of Nightwing's friends, they go out and um, foil these other assassination tips. Like, so they, they defeat this uh, agent and they go into her system basically. And they say, look at all these people. There's an entire hidden network of assassins. Um, and he's like, I want to use them. And, and while he's like, wait, you want to do what? He's like, yeah, I'm going to send them all out on jobs uh, but the people that they're unbeknownst to them, these squads of assassins, the people that they're uh, charged with with killing are members of the Titans, and so it's it's kind of like a setup. And so we see Donna Troy, we see uh, Aqualad, uh, we see John Kent Superman, we see Starfire, uh, and they're all there to to take down these uh, these would be assassins. And then Lady Lady Shiva goes to Bloodhaven and goes to Blockbuster and is like, hey. Um, Blockbuster assumes she's there for the Dick Grayson job and she's like, no, I'm here to, as a courtesy to tell you that Dick Grayson must be protected from somebody way up on high and if you want him killed, you're going to have to do it yourself because over 20 of the top assassins are now in custody um, because they took, you know, th they were charged with, with taking out Dick Grayson. So clearly Dick Grayson has some really powerful people in his corner and the, you know, this loose confederacy of assassins where nobody's going to be willing to take that job. So if you want it done, you're going to have to do it yourself. Uh, and we're also told that one of the assassins was found dead with his heart removed. So we know what that's all about. That's not related to what Dick Grayson and the Titans did. That has everything to do with the, uh, the heartless killer or whatever he's called uh, that we saw yeah. <laughs> way back in the, in the first issue of, of Tom King's run. So I enjoyed this. It was, uh, it was action packed. The uh, the pacing w was breakneck, but it, it suited the story, especially with uh, with you know Wally West guest starring here. Uh, we know how fast he moves. Uh, the art isn't as refined as you would expect to get when Bruno Redondo is handling the art duties, but I thought Borges did an adequate job. Um, again, it's it's nowhere the, the even the page layouts, the way the panels are laid out on the page and whatnot. It's just nowhere near as dynamic or as innovative of what Bruno Redondo does, but. That's to take away nothing from Borges' storytelling, which is, is, is fine. You know, his transitions from panel to panel are very smooth. The action is very clear. Um, I didn't even mind that the backgrounds tended to be uh, light at times because I, I enjoyed his storytelling for the most part. So, uh, yeah, um, I think Tom Taylor on Nightwing continues to be a, a really good title. So what are your thoughts? Well, I... I'm beginning to see why some of the criticism of Tom Taylor by others uh, in the past has been that while too much character work, too much touchy-feely moments, not enough plot and substance uh, to move the story along. I can kind of see that here. Not a lot happens in this issue, but wait, when I think about it, there's a, there is some very fun character moments. There is. And, and I'm, I'm kind of torn. On the one hand, I don't feel that we're any, we're not really, we know nothing about the, the blockbuster storyline really isn't moving forward all that much. We're not learning anything about, uh, you know, about his sister, the, 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 the mayor. Uh, we're not really, we're not really, the, the substance of the plot isn't really moving. But at the same time, I have to ask myself, am I satisfied? Well, there are moments of satisfaction in this issue. Uh, 
it, they don't move the plot a lot, but they're kind of funny. I mean, even like even the page with uh, what stands out to me was the page with Nightwing, you know, with, with, in front of KG Beast telling K, you know, he wants to take KG Beast's KG Beast's picture, but he doesn't really want to see his picture. He just wants to open up his iPhone <laughs> to figure out what he's up to. Uh, Nightwing shows off his detective skills, and right away he he figures out from the GPS in the van that where that him and Wally were transported in that uh, that the bomb that KG Beast is referring to is in the Gotham City Library. So Tom Taylor manages in the while while at the same time that he is working these character moments that we love him so much for, we actually do get some movement of the plot at the same time that often is told to us, not always shown to us, but. It's 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 that it's that balance, and if uh, if you if you love his character work, you love his character works, and and Tom Taylor fans are in two camps, uh, the 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 ones there are ones that really love his character work, and we're gonna forgive him for maybe some slowness or plotting nature of of the plot itself, and others get you know it depends on what your you know what your I guess tolerance line is for okay when is too much character work, too much character work, uh, and we want to get this plot moving already. And then, of course, I guess there's, you know, maybe I'm in between there. So I'm, I like this. I love the interplay between Wally and Nightwing. And you know what? I'm getting exactly what I asked for. So I'm scolding myself at the same time as I'm saying this because I'm kind of being hypocritical. It's like, well, goddamn, I, I bitch about I want character-driven plot. Well, I'm getting a lot of character work. But I want character-driven plots. I want plots to be character-driven, but I want the plot to move along a little faster too. So I'm being pretty hard on Tom Taylor here. I enjoyed this, but I do wish this would move a little bit faster. But as a compliment to Tom Taylor, and perhaps this is an underhanded compliment, uh, I'm, I'm interested about so many aspects of his story that I'm getting from his character work and then I turn around and I want the plot to move faster because I'm so fascinated by what he's introduced through his character work. So I want my cake and, and I want to eat it too. And so, uh, so anyways, it's a, it's a good problem to have. Uh, but, you know, if I constructively critical, I would like the plot to move a little faster. Yeah, I agree with you. And when I – so my first reaction upon finishing reading it, I went, well, that was pretty good. But, it, yeah, we didn't get much movement for the Bloodhaven story other than – Lady Shiva showing up and telling Blockbuster, if you want something done, you're going to have to do it yourself. That, that's basically the only movement we got for the main plot. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I did have that sense. But then as I thought about it more, I, I kind of came around to your way of thinking where I was like, well, you know what? That, that's okay because I'm enjoying it for what it is. Those character moments, like you said, the interaction between Dick Grayson and Wally West, who've been friends for, you know, what? 40 years at this point, not longer. I mean, obviously not in comic time, but yeah. uh, they've been friends their whole adult lives in, in, you know, in continuity. And so, yeah, I enjoy seeing it's, it's okay to once in a while to have this sort of issue where uh, we don't get much forward momentum on plot, but I will agree with you. You can't do it every issue, Tom Taylor. You do have to give us something <laughs> because you, like how excited were we when we found out about his sister, right? And we haven't really touched on that since. You know, it's been mentioned, but we haven't like, let's, yeah, let's get a little bit of that going as well. So anyway, uh, not that we planned it out this way, but I'm glad you get to go first on this next one. It's uh, because it's one of your favorite <laughs> DC series. It's Flash number 781 from writer Jeremy Adams 
Fernando Passerin does the pencils. We have Matt Ryan on inks. Jeremy Cox does uh, the colors for most of the book. Uh, Pete Pantazias fills in on a couple of pages. And then Rob Lee handles the letters. So uh, what would you think of this one? Uh, I actually thought that this was uh, – <laughs> I'm going to say the same thing. It's, it's similar to a review to what we just finished about Nightwing. I actually – I'm not a – I'm you know, full disclosure – I'm not like a huge Wallace West fan. I like it's not like I'm not a fan of Wallace West. It's just that I don't. I, I I'd rather see him in Young Justice or Teen Titans. I'd like to see him in. A, I don't need him showing up here in in the Flash. But I don't mind it. it. It's it's good. Jeremy Adams is really good at this. He's good at writing. I mean, he's I, I love Jeremy Adams and Jeremy Adams. He told us in the interview you let me join you on when you we interviewed Jeremy Adams. He said. He told us that this issue would be coming up because he wanted to he wanted to focus on Wallace West because he loves uh, Wallace West as well. And, you know, his love for the character, it shines through here. Uh, and you can tell uh, this is uh, you could tell here that this is this is uh, Wally West basically wants he he wants Wallace to basically join him to just have a day of fun. And he shows up and, you know, Wallace West is in the middle of a test <laughs> and, uh, you know, Wally shows up and says, let's go, you know, let's let's go have some fun. All pedal, no bricks is the name of the issue. And that's what this issue is. And it's just, you know, it's Wally basically uh, explaining to, to Wallace his experiences when, when he was basically uh, growing up because he was a young Flash. He was younger than Wallace was when he got his powers, or at least that's the impression that, that I got from uh, the, the, the way the story is told. And, you know, he Wally, Wally tells a story about how, you know, at first he would just go out for adventures with Barry alongside Barry Allen. But after a while, he started to go out and do his own adventuring on the side. And he speaks of one time where he ends up, uh, ends up meeting uh, Barry, uh, you know, during a, during a crisis and, 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 and Barry never, never scolded him for, for going out on his own. And it was just about basically a hero sort of finding your own path, finding your own way and not being afraid to make mistakes. And it's sort of like the, it's, you know, it, there's, there's a little bit of tropiness there, but it's, it's exactly the type of lesson that, that you would expect a mentor to bestow upon a mentee and Wally does it in such a way where he's not, he's not forcing it on Wallace's mouth. He's basically just, you know, he's, he's, he, he just wants Wallace to know that he's there for him. Uh, let's have some fun. Uh, and that, that's exactly what, that's exactly what they do. And, and, and really not much happens this issue. This is just two guys, you know, uh, Wally and his, his cousin Wallace, they're just out, they're running around literally and they're having fun and they're just uh, basically running around the world, uh, doing different things, uh, helping people, doing what superheroes do. And you know, quite frankly, you know, when I read this issue, I I liked Wallace West more. And you know what? I couldn't help but think when I read this issue, I wish that just once that we would get some sense between Arthur Curry and Jackson Hyde. I don't feel that we got an issue between Arthur Curry and Jackson Hyde where Arthur Curry and Jackson Hyde have the kind of moments that Wally here has with Wallace. And it just, to me, this is in one single issue, uh, Jeremy Adams was able to do what uh, Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas have not been able to do in vis-a-vis the relationship between Arthur Curry and uh, Jackson Hyde. And I just point that out that you don't need to necessarily have a whole series or, or called Aquaman or, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on 
you know, Aquaman or Aquaman or Jackson Hyde. But it, it is a point worth mentioning that sometimes just having a fun issue. Uh, these are both characters that are, these are likable characters and they bloody well should be. They're superheroes. And uh, sometimes if you put too much thought into just establishing these legacy relationships, sometimes you can do more harm than good. And so now that's, that's a topic for another day, maybe for maybe a rant and rave at some point. But to me, this is establishing a relationship done right. You know, focus on, on what works in the relationship before you tell us, before you show us all the dysfunction, uh, you know, we're not looking at an angry or upset Wallace West here who's who's angrily rebelling against uh, against what's happened to him. I, I just like this. This is just good fun. This is what Jeremy Adams is really good at. And I think there's a lesson to be had here uh, if you're, especially if you're writing Aquaman <laughs> or Aquaman. And, uh, but yeah, I enjoyed this. Jeremy Adams, great job. And, you know, Again, not much happens, but for a relationship issue, for those who love The Flash, I think this is an issue that we needed because we want. We were wondering what's happened with Wallace West, and we've been given short thrift with the Young Justice series and Teen Titans Academy. It's, we got short shift with that. So it's nice to see these two Flashes together. Yeah, I agree. This was a really fun issue. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting where D- DC is at right now. You know, we... I talked in the, at the beginning uh, about some restructuring, perhaps. One thing I didn't mention is that Discovery has come right out and apparently been holding interviews and come right out and said they want like a Kevin Feige type to to oversee the whole thing. And I saw on on social media where Jimmy Palmiotti was like, well, they have my number. Yes. Not that I necessarily <laughs> think that Jimmy would be – I mean, I don't know if he would be good or not in terms of – steering the ship for, for film and TV and that sort of thing. That's not where his expertise lies. He might be very good at it. I don't know. Uh, I certainly would be willing to give him a shot, but he knows comics and we have specifically asked him before on this show. Hey, if you were the head of DC comics, you know, how, where, what would be your first step? And he oftentimes talks about getting the whole group together and, and showing them Darwin cook's new frontier and saying, we need to get back to telling stories with this spirit of these characters. Well, that's what this issue is. This issue stands on its own. You don't have to know anything that's going on in DC for the last 30 years. You don't have to read any DC comics going forward if you don't want to. You can read this on its own and get a sense of who Wally West is, get a sense of who Wallace West is and their relationship. And it's just a fun issue. And the style of Fernando Passerin's art with this beautiful detail and the, the, the visual tricks he does from the let's go, you know, carved into the ground on the sidewalk to Wallace bouncing a crumpled up piece of paper off of, um, I guess that's supposed to be uh, Gorilla Greg's head. Uh, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, they're, they're racing over the top of the St. Louis Arch. They're running through the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's just, it's just fun. And the style of art and the, the visual cues that Fernando Passerin is taking from the script that Jeremy Adams is giving him work perfectly together and it stands alone, right? And it's getting back to the classic feel of DC comics. Like Jimmy's talking about, we, we just got done talking about um, the idea of writing for the trade, whether uh, you you know listen to, to what I said about was uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, Blue and Gold, was that supposed to be more? Because it seemed like we got one six issue arc and then a truncated arc or what's going on with, uh, with uh, Batman the Night, like, you know, 
writing for the trade in four or five, six issues, what have you. This stands on its own. This is what comics used to be. Like it was rare uh, where you got something that continued to two issues, let alone three, four, five, or six. You know, this is going back to that idea that you can pick up a comic and read it and it stands on its own and you can get a good story and it's a lot of fun with great art. That's what this is. And Rocky's right. Like Jeremy Adams is doing a fantastic job. And I, I have to wonder like, what the heck is going on that DC Comics, we know Jeremy Adams, he's told us on this show, we know he has ideas for other books. Why does, Why is he only writing this one? You know, the guy clearly is talented. And uh, he's ta- he talked on the show about the fact that he wants to make these books accessible for readers of all ages as well. And we all know comics need a younger generation of readers coming in. So it's Definitely. hard to oversell just how good this issue would be for somebody who's not familiar with anything that's going on in the DCU and you could just pick this up and read it. So yeah. there's so much good here. Uh, even to the point of uh, Wally West keeps calling Wallace Ace, you know, that play on wall Ace, you know, if you look yeah. at the way it's spelled and, and Wallace yeah. keeps saying, yeah, stop calling me Ace. Stop calling me Ace. It would be a good nickname for him. You know, I, I think it would, it's Great kind of nickname. awkward. Yeah, for, for Wally West to turn around and call this other guy Wallace or Wally when that's his own name. So, yeah, I like that aspect. It shows that uh, Jeremy Adams has put a lot of thought into this. So, uh, yeah, I thought this was a fantastic issue for one and done. There's so many great moments packed in it, like I was saying, uh, especially from the Fernando Passer and Art, whether it's going to Scardicus, uh, uh, which is where uh, Warlord series took place for many, many years, Uh Wally and Wallace coming across a uh, the, the Legion of Doom, the Dome of Doom headquarters was a lot of fun. Um, the big explosion when uh, Girder is uh, robbing the bank. I love how the uh, I'm assuming it was the letter that did the sound effect there. How Wally and Wallace are sort of the the holes in the middle of the O's for the kaboom. <laughs> yeah, the kaboom the, in the yeah. boom through yeah. the O's in the boom. <laughs> yeah, it's just fantastic. Like, again, you know, much like the issue we got where you had to turn the page, which sort of tied into the yeah. other stuff that happened in general, but you could read it on its own, how the narrative fits in with the visual sequential storytelling so well. It happens again in this issue, this issue that stands alone on its own. The color work is fantastic. So, yeah, it's really hard to say that Flash isn't the most DC of the DC books that are coming out right now in terms of just feeling classically DC, lighthearted, fun with fantastic yeah. art. So yeah, uh, if I was looking to, to get like a 10 or 12 year old into DC comics, it's probably the book that I would start them off with uh, yeah. of the current books that are coming out anyway. Agreed. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next, we have Wonder Woman Evolution number six. This is from writer Stephanie Phillips, Mike Hawthorne on pencils, Adriano D. Benedetto on inks. Stefano Raphael uh, help, helps out with the pencils and also does inks. Jordi Belair on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. So we saw last issue, it was revealed that there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Every it, It's kind of meta because everything that Wonder Woman is seeing, supposedly from these alien beings uh, who are basically saying, prove to us that humanity deserves to continue to exist. And they're showing her illusions and different trials and different things that she's having to do. But even that itself is an illusion. So she's almost, you know, in a simulation within a simulation because it was revealed last issue that there's this group of scientists that are manipulating her and, and putting these images in her head. And we get uh, on the final page here, 
uh, we see that she's in a deprivation tank and it even says next issue is going to be called deprivation. So she's in this tank, she's uh, restrained and she's got all these wires connected to her head. Um, I'm, I'm assuming she's suspended in some sort of liquid because she has like a, a mask over her nose and mouth. Uh, I'm assuming to help her breathe uh, or maybe it's to keep her sedated. I'm not sure. Uh, but what's clear is everything that's happening in her head, all these different scenarios that are being fed to her, none of it is happening. None of it is true. Uh, she keeps being presented with these challenges that I think are supposed to be uh, unable to be overcome and she keeps finding a way to overcome them. So in a way, the story from Stephanie Phillips is showing us how powerful and capable Wonder Woman is and how she just won't quit. Um, in addition to showing us that, hey, these people are trying to, uh, to manipulate her. So um, kind of going along with that, I've said many times when reviewing this book that Mike Hawthorne's art gives us the most powerful looking Wonder Woman in terms of you know, her musculature and whatnot that I've, I can ever remember seeing. So um, it, it's not necessarily the aesthetic for Wonder Woman that you would normally see, but I think for this story, for what Stephanie Phillips is trying to do, that it's working. Uh, so what do you think, Rocky? Well, uh, I, I will give a shout out to uh, Stephanie uh, Phillips because uh, uh, I know on Twitter she's always posting pictures of herself working out, whether it's with other creators at Comic Cons or whatever. So she le- she's a woman. She is a she is a former. I think she, a Thai fight. What, what kind of fighter was she? She was. Yeah, uh, Muay, I think she still fights Muay Thai. Yeah, Muay, Muay Thai. I mean, well, Mai Thai or whatever. <laughs> no, you, yeah. you you drink a Mai Thai. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, she's clearly somebody. She's physically fit herself, and. Uh, she obviously her iteration of Wonder Woman is uh, has more musculature than most, and that's pretty cool because it's nice to see different iterations of the character. And Mike Hawthorne is doing a good job with that, along with uh, Adriano Di Benedetto's inks. And uh, I, I still have though I still have some I, I feel a little bit misled by this story a little bit, although maybe that's from the solicits. In fairness, uh, this this doesn't. Very clearly, this doesn't appear to be at all about a judgment from the gods. That was all, it's clear, I think, now, that's all misdirection. This is all something that's taken place in her head. We, we, there's a, the villain in play here. We're not, we're not sure who this villain is, but somebody is manipulating Wonder Woman. His idea is that he wants to, I guess, I guess, debilitate Wonder Woman psychologically by challenging her repeatedly with these moral dilemmas, whether it's a, you know, whether it's illusions, there was, uh, in the earlier issues, there was uh, illusions of her in, in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, post, you know, post-World War II, or at the end of World War II, uh, she experienced the death of Silver Swan, uh, uh, even Steve Trevor. She had a moral dilemma, an ethical dilemma in one issue with the Justice League in terms of what to do with an alien, uh, with an alien creature, whether or not to return an alien fugitive back to their planet because of the, a choice they made that Wonder Woman agreed with. Uh, she had issues with, uh, you know, obviously she battled her own uh, uh, fellow Amazons on Paradise Island and met Donna Troy and all of these things. None of this has actually happened. And, and even here, this issue where this issue were made privy to what Donna Troy, the character Donna Troy, that's also just an illusion, a, fig, a figment of Wonder Woman's imagination or where wherever in the Matrix Wonder Woman is, the last day of Earth is is what is Wonder Woman experiencing the last day of Earth because our sun explodes and and uh, Wonder Woman attempts to save the day here by going up to the sun and uh, and absorbing the sun's the explosion of the sun 
again, kind of weird. Wonder I've never I never knew Wonder Woman. Actually, to be honest, I never thought Wonder Woman as being someone who could fly in space. Although that that's a I guess that's a we can. Wonder Woman fans can disagree as to whether or not Wonder Woman can fly. Does she glide on air currents or can she actually fly at supersonic speed? That's open for debate. Uh, can she fly in space? Well, uh, Stephanie Phillips' iteration of Wonder Woman certainly can and also has the power to, through utilizing her gauntlets, can absorb the full radiation of an entire sun. How that saves the Earth, it obviously doesn't. It doesn't matter anyway because none of this is actually happening. And that's the one thing that I find very frustrating because I'm not really clear in my mind, and maybe it's going to come together because we got two issues left. It's not really clear in my mind how all these different experiences that Wonder Woman has experienced in this, this matrix, how are all these themes directly related? It's, it's like Wonder Woman is being challenged with these questions, but are not all, it's not obvious to me that all of this has to do with the one theme is of is humanity worthy? And now that we're told that it's all just a game and there are no gods and it's all a bunch of nonsense. When did the illusions began? Was it really Superman that we even saw in the first issue? Or was that an illusion too? Uh, you know, where, you know, what's the truth? Uh, and also what I find interesting is, uh, um, I, I do note that Wonder Woman seems to be deprived of her magic lasso when she's in this, when she's in this tank at the end, she doesn't have her magic lasso. Now, not having the magic lasso would be the one thing that would deprive Wonder Woman of the ability to see through illusions because in various iterations of the of the ma magic lasso, it allows her to see through deception. She doesn't appear to have her magic lasso, so that probably makes her more likely to be vulnerable to the, the computer machinations of this matrix that Wonder Woman is, is hooked up to. Uh, but I'm talking more in terms of theme because I love a good metaphor and I love a good theme. And I'm getting mixed signals as exactly what it is here and what is the actual point? What is Stephanie Phillips trying to say about this Wonder Woman other than the fact that she's, she can be tested and okay, she's making all the choices you would expect Wonder Woman to make, but I'm just wondering where this is going and what the point is. This is the solicits again, which maybe the solicits are exaggerating, talk about this new major villain. And those aren't my words. That was in the advertisement. I'm looking at this so-called villain here, and he, he he looks really, really boring. He's just chewing on an apple. He's like a Lex Luthor, but with hair. And he doesn't look at all all that interesting. He just looks like another corporate type. Naturally, he's a man. And uh, and I he's just in a lab. This, this feels very underwhelming to me. It feels underwhelming for all the stuff that Wonder Woman's going through. And she's basically just the goldfish in a bowl like and and i don't know it's just uh I, I don't know i i this feels underwhelming to me but what she's experiencing in her mind is exciting what what she's experiencing through the this matrix or whatever it is allows mike hawthorne to show off his uh best iteration of his his of the character that he's capable of drawing and I am curious to see how this ends, but very clearly this the answer is irrelevant. It, it no longer matters what the answer is because none of it's happening. So I can't help but to be a little disappointed in that regard because I don't know what the stakes are here. So Wonder Woman's going to escape and and what? That's that's going to be it. Unhook her and away you go. So I'm uh, I'm not really sure what the stakes are here because it's it just I'm this is kind of meh to me right now. 
And it's I'd rather be I'd rather be lost in Wonder Woman's head going through those adventures than listening to the people in the lab, you know, talk about, you know, you know, as some corporate guru type bites an apple and talks about, you know, what adventure to feed into the mind of Wonder Woman next. It seems like an odd way to tell a story, but you know, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully the ending will give me more of a payoff than what I'm expecting. I don't know. I take it as, like I said, they're throwing all these different things at Wonder Woman, these situations that are supposedly supposed to break her, right? Like the whole point is to, to convince her, it seems to me, to convince her that humanity is not worth saving so that we can, in the end, in the words of the apple biting villain, have a brand new Wonder Woman. Uh, she seems to be handling every challenge thrown at her and they keep escalating them. Uh, and it doesn't seem to make a diff- any difference. She's still Wonder Woman. She still finds a way to stay true to herself and, and for the most part, win the day or at least not give up hope, which she talks about not giving up hope a lot in this issue. So to me, that seems to be the point that Stephanie Phillips is making that Wonder Woman, no matter the challenge, no matter how long the odds are stacked against her, that she still stays Wonder Woman, which in a way – shows just how misguided this apple biting villain is at the end of the day, because uh, that last line at the end, of, uh, you know, uh, when this is all said and done, we're going to have a brand new wonder woman. And all I could think was, dude, you're, you're deranged. If you think this is working, because clearly it's not, um, you think you can just keep upping the ante and she's not going to either figure out what's going on or find a way to escape. So I have a feeling he's going to be eating those words and it's not going to be a brand new wonder woman. It's going to be the same wonder woman that we've always had, with Stephanie Phillips reminding us just how awesome Wonder Woman is. That being said, you need to stop reading the solicits, man, because the solicits don't have any, and granted, it's all we get in terms of what the story's about, but I have never, ever, in all my years of covering comics and talking to comic creators and having comic creators as friends, have I ever heard any comic creator go, yeah, I really like that solicit, but I cannot even count on both hands the number of times I've had comic book creators say, I hate the solicits. I hate what they say. I hate that the marketing department writes them. I wish I could write my own solicits. I've had that conversation with creators dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The people that write the solicits oftentimes don't even read the comic. You can't go by anything the solicits say. I no longer read solicits. I would suggest everybody out there, you don't, you don't, shouldn't read the solicits or put any uh, stock in them whatsoever. Uh, All right. That being said, let's go ahead and move on. Nice house on the lake. Number eight. This is from writer James Tynan. Alvaro Martinez Bueno does the art. Jordi Belair on colors. Um, man, this is a great book. What do you think of issue number eight? Uh, yeah, I this this continues to just intrigue the hell out of me. I mean this this story of uh, of an alien named Walter who rescues ten of his friends and puts them all in a nice house on the lake, which is kind of in a nice neat little bubble as the rest of the earth is destroyed. This nice house on the lake is protected him and his 10 friends that he handpicked over the course of 30 years as a human on earth. Uh, and he, he can give his 10 friends whatever they want, but the, but his, his friends have a nasty habit of ultimately wanting to try to find a way 
out of this nice house on the lake. They have all the amenities they want, but ultimately they always try to find a way out. They always, they, they, they find out the secrets. And the first six issues basically told the story of, of, of all these 10 people discovering the truth about Walter, that Walter, that the earth was destroyed, that Walter was from an, is clearly an alien of some kind, that he had protected them all. He got to pick and choose who to save uh, from Armageddon, and he did so. And he's always mind wiping them. Walter is always mind wiping his friends so that they, just when they remember something and they remember that they're actually there, that the, the true nature of Walter and what and what happened, he'll always he always plays with their mind. And and the theme here is really starting to come out, and it really comes into play here with issue eight because the the. the each issue seems to have the same sort of pattern where it opens up with a narration from one of the 10 characters. And each one of these 10 characters, one is a writer, one is uh, uh, one, one might be a, a writer, an architect, uh, or a, a painter, or a, a doctor, or whatever, a journalist. And, and they, they all have their own, their own symbol, and they all, they all get to whatever they wish for in the evening, it magically appears in the morning. And and so it's seemingly a great place to be, but as they discovered in the opening six issues, there are certain places you go in this nice, in this bit of real estate where the true horror, what happened to the earth uh, manifests itself. And each issue has, has a, one of these 10 characters. In this case, it's Sarah who narrates that, you know, Walter was always a different kind of person uh, as, as they got, as they got, as she got to know Walter, Walter was always somebody who he sort of when he befriended you, he sort of put you on the list. And then if he didn't like you, eventually you'd come off the list. And he even made reference from time to time about, about certain people being on the list and, and the list being, of course, the list of the people that he would save when Armageddon occurred. And you, there's a, it's again, it's, it's the character work here in the dialogue. And you really see the interplay between these 10 people on this, on this lake because sooner or later they're going to drive each other insane. I mean, are they going to live there forever? I mean, imagine a place that you can never leave. And, and one of the characters named Ryan here, Ryan is, uh, she is an artist herself, but at over the course of these six issues, there is another person that showed up and that was Reg and he's another artist. So we have a redundancy. Ryan feels redundant because her and Reggie, they're both artists. Reggie has created uh, a shed, like he built a, he drew a design for a shed that was created the next day. And, and so, you know, Walter is, is, is doing these things to try to make them all happy. And he's suggesting, well, why don't we have a farm and build a farm? And Walter's always trying to distract them and uh, away from trying to figure out where they're at. But, but they keep going back to, you know, they have these group meetings in the mornings and they want to build an antenna and they want to try to pierce the veil and peer into the outside world and see what's going on. And, and meanwhile, there's another character that Walter is sort of hidden from view, and that's Nora. And Nora is sort of like in a prison cell. And and this is where artist uh, uh, Alvano Martinez-Breno really shines. Uh, this The character Nora is actually sort of like almost hidden behind the walls. And and she the artist does a great job showing Nora sort of being able to watch all the other characters uh you know, mingle with each other and talk. And yet they don't know that she's essentially sort of trapped away. She's Walter. She knows the truth about Walter. Walter did not mind wipe 
all the characters, nor is the one that he can talk to. And, and he, he talks about his frustrations about, you know, wanting, wanting them to, to get used to their situation and to, to, to continue to move forward and, and to stop trying to figure out and, and undo all the stuff that they did. And, um, you can really see the frustration of Walter and, but, and you can also see his flaws of character and his inability to let go because, all these 10 people, all his friends, they want to evolve. They want to grow. They, they're different people than, you know, people change. But Walter doesn't want change. Walter hates change. Walter wants the characters to stay, the, his friends to stay how they are. And he, he's trying to, he's too much of a control freak. He's trying to control them. So there's themes here of control and, and dominance and, and a reluctance to change and extreme conservatism in, in terms of your expectations of friends and, and how people change as they get older. And just, just Tin, this is probably arguably Tinian's best work in my mind out of all the stuff that he's written. So much potential here. I want this to continue on. I, I love the work that he does here. Um, it's just, this, this, this really is a, uh, a series that, uh, I think the character work just, just, just shines. I don't know where this is going. That's what I find so fascinating about it. What happens when all of them find out and what if Walter loses the ability to mind control them or take away their knowledge as they slowly gain more information and knowledge about what Walter has done to them? Every time they do, he, he wipes their memory. At some point, something's going to happen and Walter's going to have to face them without the ability to mind wipe them because uh, that's because there's something truly horrific about the, their situation. And eventually you, you can only keep people in the dark for so long. And that's what you can tell that in the background, this is what this is building to. And I love this man. I, every time I read this issue, the, the character work, the dialogue, everything's spot on. This is the one issue. I remember when Tinian first started writing for DC, he was fairly exposition heavy. And he got very exposition heavy when Tinian wrote Justice League Dark. To, and he got he's gotten criticized that early on but this is the one he's gotten much better like you know i mean he, he's the best writer he's the best writer out there arguably today writing comic books today arguably and you know his use of his exposition whenever he, i i so completely trust tinian now that if if there's a page riddled with exposition and it, i know tinian's the writer i'll read every single word cuz there's a point to it and um man i I'm I'm loving this and I uh I, I can't wait till this comes up. I, I don't know I don't read Tinian's newsletter, but does this have has shelf life? Is this set for a number of issues or is this set to end or what do you know about this uh series, Jason? Yeah, it's twelve issues. Um is what Only it's planned 12? for. So oh. yeah, we're two thirds two thirds of the way through. So wow. well, what uh, do you think and you're right. right. Yeah, we don't we don't know where it's going and that that's what's so fascinating. Uh and also I feel like the art by Bueno here, uh, I mean, I know his art mostly from the work he did with Tynan on Justice League Dark, which is was very super heroic and very almost DC house style. So the choices he's making here and the choices that Jordi Belair is making with colors, I mean, this isn't traditional, isn't colored in what I would consider a traditional fashion, you know, using a lot of purples and greens and blues and yellows for skin tones and whatnot. It gives it a certain uh, aesthetic or, or going completely the other way and giving us almost um, like washed out, uncolored uh, faces. It, it's fascinating. The fact that Walter, he always has these glasses on 
where you know the lenses of the glasses are are flat so they don't reflect anything uh like all of the artistic choices that the artistic team's making are really feeding into the mysterious narrative that uh, that Tynan is creating so like visually this is one of the most interesting books on on the stands um in terms of what Walter's going through as this, you know, and we don't know 100% is he an alien? I mean, that we're making that assumption. Tynan's never come out and said that. Is he some sort of mythological being, magical being? Like, we don't, we just don't know. Uh, but the questions that have been raised are, are really interesting. And they're not questions that have easy answers, regardless of where the story is going to end up. I mean, the first half of the story when it was established, you know, was that cliffhanger ending at the very first issue where the world was to an end. They see it on their TV, the world outside this bubble where they exist, this nice house on the lake is it's apocalypse. It's Armageddon. You know, people are being burned alive. Cities are melting. They know the end of the world comes and they're stuck there. Uh, and so they're a little more, they're not so uh, focused on trying to get out and trying to escape because they, they believe that the world has ended. Not that they don't want to know and that they're not curious, you know, if any loved ones have survived. But ultimately, they're not happy, you know, especially when Walter reveals, yes, I saved you all. Yes, the world ended. And that's why he chooses to mind wipe them. And, and we get that restart after six issues because they weren't able to be satisfied knowing that the world ended and they were saved. You know, Walter thought by revealing that the world had ended and they were saved, that they would be happy and grateful and just be willing to live, you know, like, uh, you know, a bug under glass, I suppose you could say, or, or you know, like ants on an ant, ant farm. So this time he chooses to restart it. It's never clear why he chooses to bring Reg, who was separated previously the first time, why he brings Reg out and puts Nora in the isolation chamber or whatever you want to call it. She's the only one that remembers everybody else has, has had their uh, mind wiped. But now their focus is on, hey, we want to escape. We want to find out what's going on. We want to figure out a way to get out of here. Um, and Walter's trying to distract him, as you said, with the ideas of, hey, let's find a way to make this livable. We could be here for a long time, blah, blah, blah. You know, let's distract ourselves with the farm or, or whatever it is. And he has Nora to go and talk to. You know, it seems like maybe that's why he keeps one friend sort of aware of what's going on. So he has like a sounding board. And But she's not about to play that role for him. She's like, you know, F you, dude. Like, if you think that these people are not going to want to escape, not realizing that the world outside no longer exists and you know you're fooling yourself so it's not like walter's this all-powerful all-knowing being right he's got his own hang-ups and weaknesses and foibles as well and i think that aspect of it is interesting because it's almost like for all his time on earth decades we're told he really doesn't seem to have a great understanding of, of human nature it's like he understands it on a superficial level like in terms of his relationship to these people but he doesn't understand what it truly means to be human and, and what drives us as a species. And so I find that aspect of the story fascinating as well. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, as much as I want to know how this story ends, I wouldn't mind if it was more than 12 issues because the interact, I mean, this could go on for years uh, in terms of, yeah, I don't know that I'd want the mystery stretched out that far, but we could have issues that just focus with such a diverse cast and such a big cast. We could have issues that just focus on any number of interpersonal relationships between, you know, just two of the characters. And we're not getting a whole lot of that. I wish we got a little bit more of it. Um, but I understand that the, the overall narrative has to take precedence, but if you were to spread it out over more issues, you might be able to explore more of that. So 
yeah, super underrated. Not enough people talking about it. Fantastic book. Uh, okay. Uh, I, yeah, last book we're going to talk about in uh, detail is uh, Catwoman Lonely City number three. This is a black label book. It's written, drawn, colored, and lettered. He's doing it all, folks, by Cliff Chang. Uh, and as I said, this is issue number three. It's black label. It's oversized. And it's the, the story of basically Catwoman trying to pull off one last heist. You know, when Batman sort of died in her arms on, on what was dubbed Fool's Night, where all these Gotham citizens either – it wasn't never clear if it was like mass psychosis or mass hypnosis or just – mass lunacy instigated by the Joker, these uh, citizens kind of rose rose up in revolt and it was sort of anarchy in the streets of Gotham and Batman and his allies brought order back, but uh, Batman himself ended up dying in an explosion or, or was injured and died in Catwoman's arms and the last words out of his mouth were Orpheus and uh, she thinks it has something to do with something that's hidden in the Batcave and so Catwoman was captured that night. She spent any number of years in prison. Now she's out. She's pulling one last heist to get into the Batcave, which is heavily guarded by the Gotham City Police Department, um, to find out what he, Bruce meant by that, what's his legacy, what's left down there in the Batcave. When I say it's the Batcave's guarded by the, the Gotham City Police Department, this isn't your typical Gotham City Police Department. It's much more in line with what we saw in Future State or um, in Fear State, where it's much more fascist and materialistic. Um, Harvey Dent is the mayor of uh, of Gotham City. He's much more militaristic, and you know there's curfews and military grade weapons that the the police carry around. He's outlawed uh, uh, vigilantism. You know, much like we've seen in a lot of other books, definitely seems to be a theme these days. Uh, I think that has a lot to do with what, what's going on in the world right now. Um, but in a way, Gotham City is is much safer. But it's it's that same old trade off that we see in society, uh, you know, even in this country after nine eleven. When you're safer, when you put in more safeguards, you give up a measure of your freedom. You can have both. Those things are diametrically opposed, right? Like true freedom would lead to anarchy because there would be no laws. Everybody would be free to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, to whomever they wanted, without consequence. That's anarchy. You you can't have that. You have to have rules to have a structured society. But if you have too many rules, then you're really starting to infringe upon people's personal freedom. So it's that constant push and pull, which they'll, you know, as long as humans exist and, and we're not living in a utopia where there are unlimited uh, resources and uh, everything is handed to us and nobody has to work or, uh, you know, everything is just hunky dory. Uh, unless you live in a society like that, you're going to have that push and pull between freedom and security. And that that's really at the heart of the story that uh, that Cliff Chang's telling. Now he's dressing that up in some really interesting ideas with this uh, thought of Catwoman being an older uh, version of herself. Can she still do this? What is she really willing to risk? Who is she willing to risk to get what she wants? That sense of guilt that she has. I mean, this isn't the reckless, hey, I'm going to live forever, Selena Kyle, that you, know, you may have been introduced to in the past. Uh, she's filled with self-doubt. She's filled with this uh, sense of mortality she knows she senses that she doesn't have much time left and uh, for that reason she makes choices that she makes so uh, this is a fantastic fantastic story far and away the um, most interesting 
favorite thing that I, I've ever read from from Cliff Chang. And uh, not to say that Cliff hasn't done other good things in the past. You know, his New 52 Wonder Woman with Brian Azzarello, Paper Girls with Brian K. Vaughn are both excellent. But this is a class all on its own. And the fact that he's taking all of it on, uh, I love it. My only complaint, my only complaint is because he's taking it all on himself, uh, we got a little bit of a delay between issue two and issue three. And at the end of this issue three, we're told we're not getting issue four until August. August. And like I get, I get, I get it, DC. Like you, he's got the first few issues done. You're paying him to do it. You want to get some return on that investment. But that's another mistake from DC editorial or who's ever making the decisions over there to not say, we're not releasing this until it can come out on a monthly schedule. And if that means we have to wait and have to pay Cliff until it's complete completed, then that's what we'll do. Like, this is coming out in April. That means you have no issue for May, June, or July. There are a number of readers that are going to forget about this. They're, they're going to have forgotten about this, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it. it have a significant drop in sales when August rolls around, which is a real shame. You're doing a disservice to the work and you're doing a disservice to the series and you're hurting your own pocketbook at the end of the day. You're, it's having the opposite effect. Like, oh, we want to get these issues out and release them because we need to get some return on our investment. Then you got to be patient and give the series a best its best chance to succeed instead of shooting yourself in the foot because I guarantee you're going to see a drop off in sales having to wait for three months. So uh, I just, when I saw that, I was really, really disappointed. So uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on the, on the series? Well, this is uh this is a very interesting older Selena Kyle. Uh, we, we, there's some, you know, this is a Selena Kyle that's been put through the ringer. Uh, you know, Cliff, Cliff Chang does a really good job showing uh, just a, uh, giving us snapshots of the 10 years that Selena spent in prison and she was lonely. It's the, through the snapshots, we learned that she had a cellmate. She befriended someone. She taught someone how to defend herself, a cellmate, how to defend herself. And ultimately that cellmate was killed. And then Selena, after that, uh, didn't, she, she kept to herself. She basically became a loner and her sort of a recluse in prison. She never, she never got, she never had a lot of friends in prison uh, because of that experience. And, and so when she's out, she's and she's kind of lost, and she has to regain those friendships again. And for the last, this is the third issue. For, for all these issues, it has been Selena trying to find herself again, trying to find her friends, and 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 trying to build up, you know, to get some semblance of some sense of family. And, and she actually does a reasonably good job here. I mean, she even gets very close to the Riddler. Uh, and, uh, in fact, they even get, they even get intimate in this issue and she actually trains the Riddler's daughter, uh, Edie, uh, Edie Nigma. Uh, she gets, uh, reestablishes, uh, connections to Pamela Isley and, uh, it's, she creates her, her new family again. And this is a Gotham city where there's a mayoral, Election, but Barbara Gordon and Harvey Dent are the prime are, are the candidates for election. Uh, Harvey Dent is struggling with his uh, dual identity as he always has, and uh, Selena, Selena for whatever reason, and it's not clear to me, but I'm fascinated by it. There's something in the Batcave. There's some secret in the Batcave that's connected to Project Orpheus. Orpheus, as you indicated, uh, Jace was, was Batman's last words to Selena. 
you know, so whatever this Orpheus is or Project Orpheus, it's perhaps connected to the Batcave and it's connected to something that will possibly save Gotham from some kind of something event. I don't know, but it's it's really curious, interesting. I love my my a scene that I actually thought was poignant here was the death of Killer Croc. Uh, how he the, the the manner in which he went out the uh they, they actually at one point in order for this is like to me this is like a catwoman's version of oceans 11 she's got she's put together this crazy eclectic team of killer croc poison ivy riddler riddler's daughter and all these other side characters and the job is ultimately to break into the bat cave so it sounds kind of cool and you think my god and how do you break into a bat cave because bruce wayne was you know arguably the second most intelligent person on the planet if you, you know no one's breaking into the bat cave if he doesn't want to and he's dead there's a secret in the bat cave you got to break into it in order to do that she needs they need to steal a portion of the clay face of, of uh, clay face they need they need some of the body tissue of clay face because if you utilize the body tissue right, you can create a, a perfect mask because they want to impersonate a commissioner in this story. And then at one point, they even break into a museum to steal the the, the helmet of Naboo, of Dr. Fate, uh, because they need to call forth the demon Etrigan because when they, they lose Killer Croc as a teammate, they need to replace him with somebody equally as uh, powerful and strong. And so Selena Kyle is experiencing all these losses and she's already lost Batman. She spends 10 years in prison. She gets out. She's trying to reestablish these old connections. But everyone's older. Everyone's different. No one's as good or as great as they used to be. Uh, and surprisingly enough, what I thought was worked surprisingly well, who would have thought that Edward Nigma would be the voice of reason in this issue where he's he's actually a pillar of strength for Selena. And, and he seems to be sincere about it. I don't think this is something that, Cliff Chang is setting up uh, Edward Nigma to be a, uh, someone who's going to betray Selena. He genuinely seems to care for her. His daughter, Edie Nigma, is a very strong supporting character who's being trained by Selena. And Selena refuses to acknowledge the fact that she is, in fact, a mentor to young Edie. So Selena is, is really coming into her own right. She really is. Selena is almost like Bruce Wayne in Batman Beyond, uh, but she just hasn't accepted it yet. And she's even there's even one scene with Leslie Nielsen where she's Leslie Nielsen, an older Leslie Nielsen, reminisces uh, reminiscence about uh, Alfred dying after recovering Leslie, from cancer. And then, what's that? Leslie Leslie Tompkins. Tompkins, sorry, I said Nielsen. Leslie sorry. Nielsen's the guy from Police Squad. <laughs> Thank you. Which would be a totally different comic, <laughs> which I would still read. <laughs> That's awesome. My apologies to Police Squad fans everywhere. Uh, but uh, <laughs> my all-time favorite show. But anyways, uh, yes, thank you. Leslie Tompkins uh, reminisces about the death of Alfred while she's injecting Selena with cortisone shots, like four of them in a span of two months because her knees are shot. I mean, this is... I mean, you really get a sense that these characters are really on their last big heist and they need to pull this off and they need to break into the Batcave. And I can't wait. I think that this is only four issues, right? We have one final issue left. Yeah, again, that yeah. just goes back to what I was saying about why is it – why we have to wait three months? Yeah. But and no, I, I'm looking forward to it though. It's uh, The the art works well for me. I, I love great character work. It uh all these preconceptions I have about these characters, you know, uh, this is Cliff Chang has pulled me into his world here and I, I'm buying into it. Like I, I mean, who would have thought I would have, I would accept. He actually has me believing that Selena Kyle would sleep 
with Edward Nigma. I mean, good grief. How did he pull that off? And yet it, it works, strangely enough. But no, it's, yeah, I it's, love this the, is a good series. Yeah, I love the more realistic body style for po- an older Poison Ivy, too. Like, it just yeah. works. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, fantastic job. So. Yeah, she's got, she's got a lot of junk in that trunk. Yeah, she does. Uh, so anyway, that does it for the regular issues uh, that we're going to cover in this episode, everybody. We do have one more book, uh, Trial of the Amazons, Wonder Girl number two. That'll be in a separate spotlight uh, episode for Trial of the Amazons as we've done throughout that event. Uh, so don't forget to go and check out that episode. Uh, I will also mention in addition to these books that we talked about, there's a couple of trades coming out. Well, one trade and one hardcover. We have the Infinite Frontier hardcover hitting shops this week, as well as the Deceased Dead Planet trade paperback. That's the uh, Tom Taylor, uh, Trevor Harrison illustrated book about uh, an alternate DC with the anti-life equation having taken over and all that sort of stuff. So uh, go check those out if you're so inclined. Uh, any other episodes you have coming out this week you want to let people know about, Rocky? Uh, not really. Well, we're going to do, we're going to review Trial of the Amazon separately, but beyond that, no, I'm too busy at work and I'll be joining, uh, Trevor Lankiewicz, uh, Dark Knight Nation. We'll be hitting the Calgary Expo Comic-Con, uh, this coming weekend and, uh, to promote his Area 51 Helix project and, uh, uh, visit some family and have a good time with other comic creators and comic lovers and should be a good time in Calgary, Alberta. Yeah, jealous. I uh, wish I could join you guys there. Uh, I've had a few people reach out asking me about the Spawn Daily. Yeah, I know it's been over a week since we've released uh, an episode. It all goes back to the day job. I've been having to do a lot of traveling for that lately. Uh, some of it unexpected with like barely three hours notice. So uh, we will be getting back to that really, really soon. And hopefully we'll get a bunch of episodes in the can recorded. So we'll be able to release even uh, with all the traveling I'm going to be do come doing coming up really, really soon. So that being said, there are some, um, a lot of creator owned episodes, creator owned spotlights that I'm putting out right now for different campaigns on zoop and whatnot. Uh, and I'll also have uh, an interview coming up later this week with Jed McKay, a Marvel writer who's been doing a lot of great stuff over there. So look for that as well. And don't forget about our uh, spoiler free new comic book Wednesday that comes out every Wednesday. So, uh, with all that being said, thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't forget to go check out the Trial of the Amazon Spotlight if you want our thoughts on that book. And with that being said, we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.